may be seated. So a little bit of an introduction before we read from Revelation 4. Maybe some of you read ahead in the bulletin and saw that we were going to be having a sermon text from Revelation. Yep, that book. Uh, He's going to preach on Revelation? I don't know. For some of us, this book has become synonymous with contention or doctrinal correctness, especially in our Reformed tradition. And if Revelation comes up at all, we'll probably either change the subject or dig in our heels. In fact, if somebody that you know is reading from the book of Revelation or they talk to you about it, you might feel a little bit concerned for them. Are you really? You're reading what? Do your elders know you're reading through this book? So as you approach this text this morning, I would encourage you to unclench and don't slam the doors shut in your mind. Let revelation happen. Plus, Eric would be happy after the service to tie up any loose ends that I may have left dangling there. So he'll wrap it all up for you. Maybe your experience with this book is like picking through puzzle pieces, each mystery finally resting in one correct spot in relation to all the other mysteries. It's about correct positioning. Maybe some of you like puzzles, though, so I apologize. Puzzles are great. My kids love puzzles. It's great to see the larger image appearing as if you're bringing it into being. So um, Revelation rewards many kinds of readings. But I think mostly we're wary of this book or we feel the impulse to lean on specialized theological training to read it. This impulse isn't unlike the one that uh, the poet Billy Collins describes in his poem that he calls Introduction to Poetry. I'll go ahead and read that. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. I love it. So we are guarded around people and books that make us feel a little intimidated or make us feel stupid, you know. Like the only right and genuine way to read it is to read it like an enlightened person or to defer to the experts who've been through it. Bern Poitras has a wonderful commentary on Revelation. He suggests that reading through Revelation can be a rich experience for children and young adults. It tends to reward those who read it like a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel. And dare I say it, it may be more like a three-dimensional video game, the journey you take through something like that, uh, than a two-dimensional puzzle. But it does reward the opening of your imagination in, in many ways. 
surely it rewards readers who read it in many different ways, and the Lord can help us with this. So finally now, let's go ahead and pray over um, our reading together. God, please illuminate this passage for us. Change our hearts. Meet us here and make us aware of your presence with us here now. Amen. So Revelation 4, verse 1. I believe we have it in the bulletins, and if you don't, we have Bibles uh, in the back. Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a crazy scene. <clears throat> Clearly, this heavenly place is a place of incessant praise. In it, we have vivid imagery, a detailed setting, and action taking place in that setting. It's all pretty dazzling. The four strange beings seem pretty intimidating. They have many eyes, eyes even under their wings, and they have wings. So that when, they, uh, when they're in flight, they can see down and up and all around. These eyes represent incredible intelligence, and their general appearance personifies razor-sharp perception. And strength and speed as well. And they exhibit a controlled ferocity. So they, they reflect some of, some of the characteristics of their creator. So, and it's in the nature of these creatures to praise God unceasingly. These, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. 
And the worship of these four creatures is a call to worship for the 24 elders who respond with, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. This call and response sounds vaguely liturgical, probably sounds kind of familiar. The creatures are calling to worship and there's a response. In many ways, this kind of scene that we are anticipating is what we are anticipating when we draw together on Sunday mornings. And this is one of the main ideas, I think, that uh, we're exploring this morning is that uh, when we gather together for worship on Sunday, it's like and unlike this passage in, in, uh, in Revelation 4. So, unlike. Um, Dallas Willard, speaking of what our experience might be like in heaven someday, says, We should not think of ourselves as destined to be celestial bureaucrats involved eternally in celestial administrivia. That would be only slightly better than being caught up in an everlasting church service. So do you struggle with worship on Sunday morning? Do you wish we did more in our services to drum up feelings of awe or joy or sorrow or any kind of emotional release? So what, what hinders you? Distractions? Weariness? What dries out your worship of God on Sundays? Fear? Frustration? Maybe the last words you spoke in the car on the way here were bitter ones. Or maybe if, if you're a brother, you were casting, lobbing thought grenades at your sister without saying anything. What else? Self-consciousness? Does that get in your way? That's a sure killer for any spirit that uh, wants to approach God with awe. Performance? Maybe you're mainly thinking about how you look or sound to those around you. And how are your kids performing this morning? What impressions are they giving of the kind of parents they have? Again, Dallas Willard says, performance is where we try to make an impression rather than to just be who we are. The element of performance would be absent from the Trinitarian gathering, as would constant solicitude concerning how the service go this morning. God is the primary agent in this gathering. The truth is, from the only point of view that matters, God's, it is very likely that no human knows how the service went. And in any case, that cannot be judged by reading overt responses of the attendees. Unquote. Mm. It is very likely that no human knows how the service went. Our Sunday mornings together do not seem to be like the worshipful scene in Revelation 4. Maybe mostly because we don't realize that they are. And that we are caught up in a great dance. Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and that Christ is in our midst. Our imaginations fail us. It's maybe partly why God has called us to worship together in certain ways. Our imaginations have limits, or perhaps our imaginations are just malnourished. Our imaginations may be part of what the Lord wants to sanctify in us, though. Maybe? Remember Jacob's vision in Genesis twenty-eight sixteen. 
at the end of a long journey, long day's journey, halfway to where he wants to go, he collapses and a stone is pillow enough for him before he falls asleep. And he has that great vision of the heavens opening up and a ladder with angels going up and down and the voice of the Lord appearing above them. And, and uh, he speaks promises to Jacob, tells him, this land where you are sitting, it's going to be yours. I will be with you forever and ever, wherever you go. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, this is verse 16 from Genesis 28, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. God is here. Emmanuel. God with us. Right here, right now. The elements of corporate worship call us to the unseen reality of Revelation 4. In the past few months, we've looked into why we do what we do on Sunday mornings and why Presbyterians do what we do in our particular way. So this is the part where I get to cherry pick from Eric's sermons. So this is, these are all the best parts. You'll remember Eric has been drawing our attention to several themes that define our worship on Sunday morning or otherwise. Revelation, the importance of worshiping God in light of the ways that uh, he has called us to draw near to him. Worship is communal. It's a loving communal exercise since God is a loving communal trinity. And worship is Christ-centered. In our call to worship, Eric talked about um, what we were doing on Sundays as a response to God's call to us. It's not the elders calling you to worship. It's God is calling us, and throughout the service, he's calling us to worship. God's revelation is what draws us out of our own kingdoms and into his, where worship is what we are always all about. In our prayer, the prayers of the people, when we pray together, we are interceding for all kinds of people, for people we know, people we don't know, people we don't like, for people that have needs and people that don't seem to have needs. Our prayers are supposed to be seasoned with thanks, thankfulness and love, and they aim to build unity amongst us. We explored uh, the various means of grace in the past few months, the word of God or preaching, um, the sacraments, baptism and communion, and what these means of grace teach us about Jesus. Some other ideas from uh, the pa- past study The nature of our worship rises from God's nature, which is triune. Worship is more than a proclamation, more than this church stuff that we do. It is fellowship with him. We were made to be partakers in the divine nature, to participate in this divine life. And one of my favorite things Eric said was, Children, Jesus is good for you. Don't forget this. So we've come a long way in this series. It was pretty comprehensive, so now what? Maybe we're ready to move on, and what are we going to do next? But let's go a little further. How do we respond to these admonitions? Well, how do we respond to the elements of worship together and individually? Matthew 13, 52 says... 
And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Another translation is brings out of his storehouses things that are new and old. So new and old. Our world is one that clamors for new things. Our society is skeptical and cynical of anything that is not new. It borders on worship. The latest technologies, it's in the air we breathe and in the language that we use. If they're old, old things, they're probably classic, if they're considered at all. Otherwise, maybe they're just irrelevant and... Subtlety sure doesn't sell well. In general, there's a lost appreciation of repeated things. Maybe you're drawn to come to ascension because you're longing for something solid. Or you're just plain worn out from your week. You come to rest because you lack something solid to affirm. Something that will remain longer than the end of this week maybe. Since we're a confessional church, uh, we like to find old things to confess. We confess creeds. We catechize truths that our forefathers have found in scripture. And we have high church refrains and responses like, thanks be to God, and also with you. Um, Praise be to you, O Christ. Or as Michael Reeves has called these things, murmurings. Word of the Lord. (laughs) Repetitive actions and thoughts and words can become stale to us. Stale, old, tired, sapped of meaning, dry, dull, maybe they're drudgery. Or when I, like when I suggest to Derek that we read through Psalm 136, he thought, "Eh, it might be kind of tedious. So we're primed to bring out of our treasure new things, new things, new things, new things, as well as new things. Don't get bored. Keep the kids occupied and engaged. But more often, I'm I'm too tired for any of this, if I'm honest. G.K. Chesterton says at one point, Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have, found, uh, have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in the monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in the monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be the automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. 
For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Unquote. I don't want to name any names from my family, but I used to know a young child um, who repeated many wonderful things that I wrote down. She would say them over. Did I say she? This person would say them over and over again. And one time I wrote down, this person was saying, my body is a bag of blood and bones. Stomp, stomp. My body is a bag of blood and bones. I should stop there. I could go on and on with that. But maybe (laughs) that's maybe not the kind of words to be speaking over and over for too long from the pulpit. So, But are there children in your house? who pray the same prayer over and over again. You probably did this when you were younger, in the evening. Dear Jesus, Mama, 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 Papa, Grandma, Grandpa, Jesus, Amen. Like that. It's easy to get in a rut in our prayers, isn't it? But it's okay. Don't stress about it. Maybe add some new thing to your prayer every once in a while. God hears you, and he knows you, and he loves you. So how about that Psalm 136 we read earlier? I was wondering if we should have passed out glasses to everybody before we went into that. So we can chew on that psalm and savor the flavor of that psalm together. So children, how long does his steadfast love endure? Forever. Whose steadfast love endures forever? God, what? Oh, okay. What kind of love is it that endures forever? Steadfast. Does his steadfast love start to endure for you only after you show him how good you are and how smart you are? No. And for the adults, we like to use words like sovereign. What is a sovereign God like whose steadfast love endures forever? His love is here, and it's here, and it's there, and it's here again. And when that confusing, painful thing happened, and when we didn't see it filling our lives, and when we did, and it will endure, and God is inviting us to enter into this love. We tired old adults stop doing many good things before they are ready to be done. Our bodies can only do so much. But even our moments of rest can be worshipful. We can be still and know him. We can leave things be or just notice them. And we can bear witness to them. Maybe there's a response that comes from you, thankfulness or a feeling of belonging. Like John in Revelation 4, sometimes God just needs someone to attend and take notes and deliver a message. The poet Jane Kenyon died a, a few decades ago, and uh, she suffered from a mental illness, uh, but she found much comfort in God. Um, if you haven't read her work, the more you look into her and her life with the poet Donald Hall, the more, um, more gems you'll find. I'm going to read a poem of hers called Let Evening Come. Much of the careful attention in this poem calls us to bear witness. And like a lot of her poetry, God isn't front and center, but he's definitely not absent. 
let evening come. Let the light of late afternoon shine through the chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe abandoned in the long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless, so let evening come. One of the things this poem does well is that it revels in made things while yielding to the world as God has made it, because he's here with you right in it. It's okay to bear witness, even on Sundays, to fiercely beautiful things as God shows them to you. Be still and know that I am God. Be aware of his presence. Awareness is a type of knowledge. Be still and know that I am God. This is what John is doing in Revelation 4. He's bearing witness, and that is partly what we do on Sundays. And since the word of God tells us to, we bear witness not just to the things we can see, but also to the things that we cannot see. We respond with our hearts and our minds and our bodies in the various elements of worship. We hear the word of God spoken. And someone says, the word of the Lord. We say, yes. Thanks be to God. So that could be the end of the sermon, but there's an epilogue. It's only four minutes I timed it. Almost there. The gospel. Are you tired of hearing the gospel every Sunday? Are you tired of hearing about your sin? Don't be. My first years attending PCA Church, I heard the word gospel a lot, and I started to think that it was maybe Presbyterian code for that theological stuff about Jesus. Maybe you think, last week the gospel seemed to do nothing for me. And for my life, this week, it will also do nothing. Or maybe even it probably never has done anything and never will. But please don't stop there. The gospel of Jesus will surprise you. When you are languishing in doubt, the Son of God is there renewing you. You're there by the sea of glass in front of the colorful throne of God in the midst of wondrous pulsing praise. And if you were there languishing and waiting for relief, and instead of relief, more time just goes by, you may not know it, but the blessed presence of the Lamb is there with with you. He is here with us. Maybe you thought Revelation was about the one true God sitting on a throne and lots of strange creatures and strange stuff happening. But the Trinity is everywhere in this passage. God says even before, at the beginning of the scene that we read, I was in the Spirit. And then the Father shows us his begotten Son who has been there all along. And you may not recognize it, but in faith you can know that he has redeemed you. 
you, and your doubt and your languishing and your cancer and your fear and your imagination and your divorce and your sadness. And he is turning these things into blessings, way more than just relief. Who God is will turn your sorrow into worship. Now, how about that for the gospel? In Revelation 5, there's a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. The scroll is sealed with seven seals, and no one is found who can open it. Vern Poitras again suggests that the opening and reading of this scroll will be the declaration and the enactment of God's will on earth. So it's no wonder that, that John, uh, in verse 4, says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. This is the great sorrow and pain that Greg Joins talked to us about last week. John weeps over that overwhelming need we have for healing. And that overwhelming need was what Christ felt when he healed someone on his way to healing somebody else. Again, in Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion and the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then the lamb appears in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain. And in verse 13, that scene goes on. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you have made us to praise you, and you have called us to praise you, and you have helped us to praise you. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.